If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. If you need a Bible, let me encourage you. We're in long portions of historical narrative in our sermon series on Joshua. And so there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You can turn to page 181, and we certainly invite you to follow along as we believe God's Word is holy and errant, authoritative, teaching us everything we need for life and for godliness. Joshua 6, we're actually going to look back a few verses to Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, and through this story of the battle of Jericho that's familiar to many, chapter, chapters and verse numbers were not inspired in Holy Scripture originally, so the thought really comes back starting in verse 13 of chapter 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals. Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven people, seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of Yahweh. Just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns before Yahweh went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of Yahweh to circle the city, going around it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of Yahweh. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark of Yahweh walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. 
And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of Yahweh, while the trumpets blew continually. The second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Least when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. They shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire, everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze of iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. <laughs> Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So Yahweh was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is a great teacher. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would teach us, that you would show us the truth that we have to lead, to, li to live the Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a favorite hymn of old for many years now is that old spiritual, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And now it's going to be stuck in all of your heads all day long. It's very catchy, is it not? But if we're trying to be theologically accurate here, which we always should be, Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho, did he? In fact, our story tells us that it was Yahweh God who had given the city of Jericho into the hands of Israel. It was Yahweh God's power and might that caused those walls to come tumbling down. It was not Joshua and the fighting men of Israel. It was Yahweh God who gave the victory over this great military garrison called Jericho. 
And that is the major theme of the book of Joshua so far, and the theme that this story will illustrate to us, that it is Yahweh God, the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who gives his people strength and courage because he is the one who fights for his people. That is what this story is about. That's what the battle of Jericho is about. It's about the Lord and his work and his might and his faithfulness. It's not about military strategy. It's not about exactly how those walls fell down, as impressive as it would be, or the very detailed instructions for marching and blowing ram's horns and all those things. It's about the fact that Yahweh God, the Lord, He is with His people. He is fighting for them. He loves them. He's going along with them. And perhaps that's what you need to hear this morning. Perhaps that's why God in his providence has you here this morning listening to this word to know and to hear that God is with you. He is with you. He fights for you. He cares about you. Most of us in this room right now, we're not currently uh, in some real fighting battle where we must take up arms. But every single one of us in this room is in a spiritual battle. Every single one of us in this room have different types of battles that we are facing every day. Maybe, maybe it's just those lies that Satan keeps throwing at you and telling you and whispering to you, you're not good enough. You don't have it together. Maybe it's the struggles that you're having with a relationship right now where you think that reconciliation is just not possible. Maybe it's depression. And all you can see is the valley of the shadow of death and you cannot see the mountaintops. Maybe it's contentment. Maybe you just don't feel content about anything in life. Nothing feels the way that it should be to you. No matter what it is, the message for all of us today is that God is with us. He fights for us. He cares. And the Battle of Jericho, it's certainly one of the most popular books, and I mean, uh, uh, chapters in the whole book of Joshua and even in the Old Testament. And we can credit that old spiritual having a lot to do with it. It's also popular for how fantastical the story is, right? I mean, all these marching and blowing horns and, and walls falling down. I mean, it's a very odd battle plan. When you think about it, right? It, even as I was reading it out loud for the 10th time this week, it just sounds strange. Surely the people were going, what? what? You want us to do what? I mean, what if right now I said, hey, we want to prepare for the mission trip we're taking next week. So let's all go outside, march around the building. You guys would find another church next week. You would look at me like I was out of my mind, right? But God's ways are mysterious, are they not? He often works in ways that we don't expect. He often does things in ways that we can't predict, Isaiah says. And so the way God chose to bring about his will would be with ram's horns and marching and shouting and the ark going forward. But again, what is truly remarkable about this story is the obedience of Israel. They did what Joshua said, what the Lord had commanded. We don't see them arguing, saying, are you sure? I mean, this sounds crazy. They did exactly as the Lord had said. 
God did exactly what he said he would do, though very odd instructions were given. This will be a stark contrast from what we will study next week as we will see what happens when God's people do not obey and the consequences that come about because of disobedience. But to understand this story a little better, you've heard this story many, many times, but let's dig a little deeper and think about this maybe perhaps in a different way. And speaking of digging a little deeper, let's talk about some archaeology here. The archaeology being the study of artifacts, of things of old. And since the early 1900s, there's actually been about three archaeological digs, sanctioned archaeological digs, at the site of Jericho. I believe you can go there today, although it may be a little tricky with some of the unrest going on. During one of the first excavations performed by some German archaeologists, uh, they published a book that has provided some very helpful and interesting details about this heavily fortified military city. Uh, don't imagine, if you will, just some like remote village kind of set up in the middle of you know, a valley with like a center block wall around it, okay? That's that looks cool for like a VBS prop, you know, but that's not what was going on here. That is not the type of walls that we were here. These archaeologists went on to describe actually what it was. Jericho was on a mound, and so if you will, it was, it was built up like on a hill, on a dirt hill. And, and at the bottom of this mound was this great dirt embankment with, with a retaining wall around it, Okay. So the first wall they would have encountered would have been like 15 feet high almost. So imagine, if you will, from the floor to the top of whatever this metal thing is here that we don't know is there for. Um, and, it, and it was a mud brick wall. So imagine, if you will, just you know, ancient center blocks, pretty heavily fortified. It was about six feet deep. So this pulpit's huge. I love it. It's about three feet deep. So imagine another depth that size, huge, thick wall. And then there would be like an embankment, a hill that would go up after that wall. And at the top of that embankment was in fact another wall that the archaeologists think was about 20 to 26 feet high. So taller than from the floor to the tallest point of this room. And so if you can imagine this heavily fortified multi-layered wall loomed over Israel, if we were outside right now, from the, from the floor to the top of this building, that wall would have been at least that big, if not bigger. So we're talking about an imposing uh, walled city before them. Again, these guys just got out of the wilderness. They just crossed the Jordan. They didn't have like jackhammers or catapults or any type of excavation equipment that they just drug with them. They were nobads. They were living in tents. Humanly speaking, it was impossible for the Israelites to penetrate the impenetrable walls of Jericho. Taking this city was an impossible task. But Yahweh God seems to like those odds, doesn't he? Over and over again. And sometimes there are things in our lives so hard, so difficult, so big. We have nothing but to cry out to God to help us, to save us, to give us the victory. And that's what this story is going to teach us. 
about this truth that we need God and He is with us. He fights for His people. So let's examine this story a little closer by looking at three things. God's presence, God's power, and God's purpose. God's presence, God's power, and God's purpose. The first being God's presence. He is with His people. We looked at last week in those last few verses of chapter 5 and we highlighted the commander of the Lord's army showing up to show Joshua and to show Israel that he was with them and that he was fighting for them and that he was going alongside them. And we ask, who is this warrior that appeared before Joshua? What kind of strength, what kind of might did he show and possess that that Joshua literally fell on his face and worshipped him? And that should actually give us a clue here. Every place else we find in Scripture where some of God's people are falling down and worshiping some powerful being like an angel, most of the time the angel will say, do not worship me, I am not the Lord God. But here we don't find that. The commander of the army of the Lord does not correct Joshua in his prostate state of worship. And so I tend to agree with John Calvin here. Undoubtedly, the only begotten son of God is who this great warrior was that Joshua saw and that Joshua worshipped. And another clue is given to us, as I said at the beginning of the scripture reading, that in fact this this episode here is connected to chapter 6, verse 2. When immediately this commander starts to give instructions to Joshua and what he is to do. So chapter 6, verse 1, in a sense, serves as a parenthesis. It's almost like, oh, by the way, Jericho, shut up, walled in, nobody's coming or going. And then the Lord says, here are the instructions for the people. He says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And that's the key to the whole story here. Yahweh God did it. He gave the city over to the people of Israel. He was there to fight with his people. It was he who delivered the city into the hands of Joshua and the Israelites. And that's the key to all victories, right? God's presence with his people. The fact that God is with his people. That's the key to success. That's the key to Christian living, right? To walking with Christ day by day. We need God's presence. When the battle was over, And Jericho was conquered. We read at the very end of chapter 6 here, verse 27, Yahweh was with Joshua. He, He was guaranteed success. He was guaranteed prosperity because of his presence with the leader of his people, Joshua. But what about us? How do we know the Lord is with us? How do we know that God is with us in our daily lives? How can we be assured of God's presence? In other words, how do, we, how do we practice the presence of God? How do we live in such a way that, that God's presence feels tangible to us, that, he, that, he know, that we know that He is with us? Because let's just be honest, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes we feel lost and lonely and defeated. What do we do? When we get to that point, 
Well, it's not complicated. And I'm going to remind you of this and myself of this as often as possible. We must apply the means of grace that God has given us. We must apply the ordinary ways that God has ordained to show us, to demonstrate to us that He is with us, that He cares about us, that we need His presence. So it's through the the preaching of the Word, the, the studying of the Scriptures. It's through the sacraments that we have partaken of here lately, of the supper and baptism. It's through the fellowship of being with one another and encouraging one another and helping one another. And it's certainly through prayer, direct access that we have to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done. These are basic Sunday school answers, right? Thanks, Pastor. Go tell me to read my Bible and pray more, you know? But it's true. (laughs) There is no other novel thing that I'm going to present to you this morning. It's these ordinary, normal things that God has given to us that we said last week are, in fact, extraordinary. And these are the things that we absolutely must have, that we need to feel and to experience the presence of God in our lives. So when you find yourself distant from God, when you find yourself lonely and depressed, ask yourself, Am I doing the things that God has ordained to help me to know His presence in my life? Have you you told a friend? Have you asked a Bible study group or a community group, would you pray for me? I need the fellowship and the help of my church body right now because I am struggling. This is all the ways that God has shown us that we, need, that we need Him and that He is with us. And that He, is, that he fights for us. And ultimately, as we will see here later in this passage, how He has shown us that He has sent us His Son, Emmanuel, God with us. His presence is so important. We need His presence. And we are gathered together around the fellowship and the preaching and teaching of his word and the prayer of the saints, God is with us, brothers and sisters, just as he was with Joshua and his people. Secondly, let's look at God's power here in this passage and how he works in mysterious ways, does he not? The power of God is on awesome display as we see this impenetrable fortress reduced to rubble. And as soon as the walls come down, The army rushes in and takes over the city. But notice, and especially look in verses 20 and 21. Notice this. The Israelite army going in and taking over the city is not the focus of this passage. It's given a meager one and a half verses. It's not about, look who the hero is, the army of Israel. And this is to show us something here. This is to help us see that the greater victory going on here is that God, again, is with us and with his people in great power because there's someone mightier than Joshua, someone mightier than the men of Israel, someone mightier than the king of Jericho and the mighty men of valor, Yahweh God himself. It is his power on full display. And we read that on the seventh day, the trumpets blew, the people shouted, the walls came tumbling down. 
How did God do it? We don't exactly know. Was it an earthquake that he just, you know, done? The word of his power? But he did it. His power, his wonder was on full display before the land of Canaan, before all the people of Israel. And this story is a great reminder that one day there will be another trumpet sound again. A trumpet that will not just be heard on the plains of Moab in the Middle East. A trumpet that will be heard throughout the whole world, indeed the whole universe. And there will be another victory shout coming from the saints and angels of heaven, announcing that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ has come. It has been consummated in the great power of the Lord God will be known to all forever and ever and ever. That is the power of God that is microly displayed here in this story. But again, notice in the story, there's no fancy equipment. There's no great military strategy. Just a glorified marching band going around the city. And that was what God is going to use to break down those walls. We often face problems in our lives, do we not? We often have walls that we're hitting up against. And everything that we're doing to break down those walls and attack those walls, sometimes it's feel like nothing's working. Nothing is giving us victory. Nothing is giving us hope. And when that happens, when you find yourself just hitting a wall, emotionally, spiritually, physically, may God use that to remind you to go to Him and ask that His power and His might would be at work in your life because you can't do it on your own. We need the Lord. We need His power in our lives. But then last, we see God's purpose here in this story. And that is found for us specifically and really in verses 22 through 25. In verse 17, though, we read that it was God's will that Jericho is devoted to destruction. That was what pleased the Lord. That is what Yahweh God commanded, that the city be destroyed. We are not told that the Canaanites and the citizens of Jericho somehow provoked Israel, you know, like nanny nanny boo boo or your God stinks, you know. We don't read that they did anything like that, that they, that Israel was going to attack them. What we do read is that it was God's will and it was in fact God's command to do this. So if we read this story carefully, there may be something, especially when we kind of read it out of context, there may be something in you that kind of wells up that bothers you. Is this just that God would do this? Is this moral and right that God would call his people to holy war? Is this not committing genocide? How do we understand this conquest? How is this conquest of Israel morally justified? Well, there's several things that we need to understand here, and there's a lot. These, this is something we need to really wrestle with in Scripture, and this is why close Bible reading and Bible study is so important. 
And when we read back before Joshua, particularly in the Pentateuch and the books of Genesis and Deuteronomy, we actually learn that the inhabitants of this land that the Lord God had given to his people, they were not righteous. They were not Yahweh-fearing. They were, in fact, wicked. The scriptures tell us that the inhabitants of this land, they worshiped idols, they sacrificed children in worship of false gods. They participated in another of many other wicked deeds that we will not name here. You can read them about them in Leviticus 18. And we learn here that Yahweh God's purpose here is to use his people as an instrument of righteousness to purify the land that he had for his people. It's not unusual that God would use a people group to do this. Because as we'll read many times later in the story of Israel, when God's people are not acting right, he uses a foreign, wicked, pagan nation to come and judge them and attack them to correct them. But the main reason that we need to understand this holy war and this conquest in the land of Canaan is that God is the God of his people. And he cares about them. and He cares about this covenant relationship. And he wants to keep his people holy. He wants to keep them pure. And he knew that if they dwelled in the promised land with the people who practice wickedness, that it would make them susceptible to ungodliness and sinful practices. And so he was making a people pure and holy for himself and purifying the land. These are just some of the ways that we begin to understand this concept of holy war here in the scriptures. And so the command has gone forth. Devote the land to destruction for Yahweh God's holy purposes. But there is an exception granted here. Even though the whole place was to be devoted to destruction, you remember Rahab, the prostitute, the wicked, how she chose, how she somehow demonstrated faith and fear of Yahweh God, and she helped out the spies who came into the land to check out what was going on with Jericho. And we see here in this story that we are taught something amazing about the sovereign grace and mercy of God. In choosing to save Rahab and her family, we see clearly that God's sovereign grace and his sovereign choice is always involved in the salvation of his people, right? These would not be the family that you would have chose to spare from Jericho. I love what Pastor Rhett Dodson said here about this illustration. God's grace in the gospel comes to those who are not only undeserving, but ill-deserving. God's grace in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ not only comes to those who are undeserving, like all of us, but ill-deserving, who have done things that we can be so ashamed of. Yet God's mercy and grace was extended into the life of Rahab and her family. Pretty interesting when you read the accounts of the German archaeologists when they were excavating different portions of Jericho. There was a portion of mud brick wall 
that was still standing to about eight feet in height on the north section of the walls of Jericho. Could that have been Rahab's home that we know was built into the wall? We don't know for sure. But we do know that God spared and had mercy on Rahab. The point being, God had mercy. God had mercy. He extended his sovereign, saving grace into the life of a prostitute. The application for you and me here is, brothers and sisters, we are Rahab. We are Rahab. We don't deserve mercy. We do not deserve grace. But the scriptures teach us that in Christ, God saved us while we were still sinners. God had mercy on us. We must see, as one pastor said, we are not only saved from our sin, but we are saved from God's wrath and condemnation and judgment. Fundamentally, our problem isn't just with sin, it's with God. It's His wrath and judgment are being rained down on sin. And the truth is even more remarkable, that God would have mercy on us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God spared us from the the wrath of his judgment coming down upon us by taking it on the cross of Jesus Christ. We were spared from destruction. How wonderful is the love and the grace and the mercy of God when we see ourselves here in the story. When we see that we did not deserve to be spared because of our sin and wickedness. And yet, if you are in Christ... He has taken on the full brunt of God's judgment for you. Do you believe that? It's unbelievable, God's love and his mercy and his grace. You see, the battle of Jericho is more than just a cute story for children to reenact, is it not? It's a story of God's sovereign love and grace toward his people as he shows he is with them in his presence and his power and his purposes for all of history. Maybe there's a great wall in your life right now, again, that you keep hitting up against, hoping it will fall. Maybe you're thinking, if God will just fix this, fill in the blank, if God will just fix that, this part of my life, then I will be happy. But maybe what you need to do is step back and again look at the story of Rahab. And you need to see that the greatest wall in your life has already been torn down. The greatest wall in your life has already been broken down. It's called the dividing wall of hostility. The great barrier between God and man. The truth that sin has put up a a dividing wall of hostility that Most of us, none of us can even dare break down. And even by our own ethnicity that none of us are Jews in this room could even dare say that we belong to the people of God. We see that we are, in fact, the inhabitants of Jericho. But God in Christ, God in Christ has done something remarkable. He has reconciled us to himself by the cross of Jesus Christ. And the walls have come down. 
The wall has come down. The greatest obstacle in your life has already been defeated. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the greatest trouble in your life has already been defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ? The wrath of God has been satisfied. And if this is true, and it is, whatever other problems in your life, whatever walls that you're experiencing right now, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Because he sent his one and only Son. He didn't spare his greatest expense for us. How much more will he care about those walls in your life? Will you go to him? Will you beg for his presence and for his power and for his purposes to be worked in your life. Let's pray. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. Let no confidence remain in ourselves, in our own abilities to break down walls in our lives, but to trust in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, that, Lord, you have met our greatest need by taking the judgment for sin upon yourself and by grace bringing us into your presence, bringing us into victory. We praise you and thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those here right now who are hurting, who are struggling, who are hitting the wall. Lord, would you show them your presence? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.